before we begin, there are just a few housekeeping things. Um, first, please do turn off your mobile telephones um, or put them on silent. Um, at the end of the session, we'd be very grateful if you could leave by this door so that we can prepare for the next. And at the end of each session, there'll be a 15 minutes question and answer session. We'll have a microphone that will come to you. So um, if you could just state your name and affiliation before stating your question, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Um, I'm now delighted to introduce Ko Yoku. She's the curator of 154 Contemporary African Art Fair and Forum, our Critical Conversation series. She's also the founding artistic director of Raw Material Company, a center for art, knowledge, and society in Dakar. Koyo has served in the curatorial teams for Documenta 12 and Documenta 13. Her recent projects include Body Talk, Feminism, Sexuality, and the Body in the Work of Six African Women Artists at Veals, Lynn's Const Hall, and Frac Lorraine. Precarious Imagining, Visibility Surrounding African Queerness at Raw Material Company in 2014, and Word, 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 Issa Sam and the Undecipherable Form, the first monograph dedicated to the work of the renowned Senegalese artist Issa Sam. As well as sustained theoretical, exhibition, and residency program at Raw Material Company, Koyo maintains an international critical curatorial and advisory practice. She is the curator of the 2016 EVA International Islands Biennale opening in Limerick in April next year. In collaboration with Rashesh Health Salty, Koyo is working on Saving Bruce Lee, African Arab Cinema in the Era of Soviet Cultural Diplomacy, a three-year research exhibition and publication project at Garage Museum of Contemporary Art in Moscow. We'd also like to thank the Africa Center for sponsoring forum. Well, thank you, Poppy. Welcome to Forum. Over the last two editions, which is, uh, I've developed a joke to begin the sessions, but the joke has been subverted this year because the joke was about us being downstairs doing the mind business and them being upstairs doing the money business and now they moved us upstairs. <laughs> I don't know what that really means if we should be doing the money business with our minds here, which I hope not really. Anyway, uh, it is a great pleasure to, to be back in London and it is amazing for for us in the team of 154, working every year relentlessly to make this event happen with uh, lots of sacrifice, lots of passion, lots of uh, doubts also, but always with uh, undeterred energy and faith in what we are doing. And in that, I really want to thank Turiel uh, Glawi, for having this daring and amazing idea to launch this event because without her, her passion and vision and courage, we will not be having this amazing platform here. Please really applaud Toria for, 
I'm notorious in forgetting to thank sponsors and my team uh, and collaborators wrote down every single one that I should thank this year, but luckily or unfortunately, we have only one this year, so I will surely not forget to thank the Africa Center for Supporting Forum, Forum which has become a very important backbone of, of, the, of the fair and also a totally independent space that does not necessarily translate what is going on in the gallery, but rather looks at the, the discourse and the ideas and the preoccupations and the political kind of imaginaries and discussions that are going around coming out of the contemporary uh, artistic practice. And, uh, those people who know my practice a little bit know how much I'm engaged in collaboration, in exchange, in knowledge production, in knowledge sharing. And for this year, I'm very, very happy and particularly privileged to have had the possibility to invite a very dear colleague to think with me through this program, to elaborate this program with me, and to discuss with me what matters in constructing this program. And I want to name Omar Berada so that you understand why you see his name a lot in the, in the schedule and don't know why he is there. So please applaud Omar Berada with whom, with whom this program has been developed. Um, we decided to discuss over the four days in multiple forms uh, a subject matter that I think lays in the air, manifests politically, culturally, and even economically, but very seldom really is posed in the context and the contours that I think it should be. And uh, we want to look at the program of dispossession that develop or, or put Africa in kind of divided zones. And the world is often spliced in defined true cartographic terms. But contrary to this being, to this being a product of those Inhabiting such geographies, this remapping tends to be associated with the preserve of hegemony. Forces that seize the absorption of global magnitude into digestible political, economical, social, and cultural lexicons. So to define a geography, to circumscribe its edges in a form of a, is a form of epistemic privilege. Such privilege cuts across Africa. For many, the Sahara edges the distinct regions of the so-called Maghreb as North Africa, which is said to comprise Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, and so on. Though one may freely question the fixity of such a definition, 
The term Sub-Saharan Africa for Black Africa then is supposed to cover the countries lying south of this vast desert, a desert that is often imagined as a cultural blockade rather than a passage, a passage route that, is, has, that it has ever been. In light of current migrations movement and movements, it seems a paramount importance for me to interrogate, even dislodge, such residual concept of colonial and imperial authority. The cultural reality today evinces a far more protean social and cultural condition. And it seems that such impositions curtail artistic, cultural, and theoretical production, which are largely complex in terms of provenance, identification, and history. Taking, into, in taking those imposed rationales as the starting point for the wider discussion, this year's forum will draw on current inquiry expounded by the Pan-African publication Chimarenga in its Arabic edition of the chronic entitled Muzum from July this year. Maybe some of you saw, got that chronic, which was uh, really retaking the whole uh, discussion of the Pan-African idea, which was very strongly also infused and um, not only from the liberation movement and the, and the founding fathers of the independencies, but very clearly also was a response towards uh, the 1916 festival in Dakar, which was participating into that division, and the 1968 festival in Algiers, which was a kind of a response to the 1960. But we have someone, we will go back to that. So over the course of four days, we'll have keynote lectures, artist talks, panel discussions, and book launches, which will work to generate the wealth of discussion around artistic and intellectual relationships between North and Southern Africa. As an interrogation of the Sahara, as a conceptual boundary, and also as a provocation of the fiction that the Arab world is. The forum will explore antithetical to the notion of mutual exclusion between the two distinct geographies, how ideas indeed circulate and proliferate across this critical and fertile landscape. There is this assumption that uh, the Maghreb is something somewhere else than in Africa and maybe even sometimes that Egypt is an is a archaeological island off the coast of American universities. But I really think that uh, there is an urgency to reclaim uh, uh, African uh, thought, African production, African culture in its entirety. And that resetting the Maghreb within a global African discourse is extremely important. And this thematic will provide for us via subjectivities, living or working above and below these imposed boundaries of the Sahara, an entry into topics such as artistic historiography, 
migration, discursive frameworks, globalization, and the politics of identity, of course. Um, the idea of the Arab world as a, as a geopolitical construction to which I say to dispossess Africa of its wealth, if you look at the map today of the 22 countries that are officially recognized as Arab-speaking country or part of the Arab world, 15 of them are in Africa. So why do we continue talking about the Arab world as opposed to Africa as in its whole? That's really the question that we want to pose here and also how that participates and contribute and how we have internalized this ourselves and how does that translate into artistic practice. Forum will open, we are opening today with a keynote address delivered by Johannesburg-based Egyptian filmmaker and author Jihan El Tahari, which I will introduce later uh, more extensively. A pivotal discussion will follow, centering on a very important cultural and political and historical migration into Africa, which is the Lebanese migration into Africa, entitled the 55th state. I always consider Lebanon as part of another African country that has never received this real status, so that's why I entitled that discussion the 55th state. This session we work to consider the historical legacies of this major migratory route with discussing Professor Gilbert Ashkar and uh, from SOAS and uh, Dr. Andrew Arsan from uh, St. John's College and will be moderated by my colleague Omar Berada. And as usual, Forum will host a series of artist talks providing first-hand insight into the conditions of artistic practice within the contemporary framework. This will include contributions from artists Nidal Shamer, Theo Eshetu, Risha Mudariki. We had hoped to have Hassan Moussa, but unfortunately we could not have him. But Zulika Boabdela will be here, Katia Kameli is here, and Keman Wa. I can never say Keman's full word. Keman wale hulere, exactly. In addition, the program will feature leading individuals from intellectual and curatorial arenas to explicate and even recast the contextual predicate for artists living and working within the divided geographies of Northern and Southern Africa. One such discussion will, will host participants Rose Issa. Rose is a curator and writer and exhibition producer, considered one of the leading advocates of visual arts and film from the Middle East. Selma Feriani, who is the director of Selma Feriani uh, Gallery in Sidi Boussaid in Tunisia, and Antonia Carver, whom many of you know as the founding director of uh, Art Dubai. This discussion will work to consider transmission, exhibition, and critical theory. How do such cartographical construct imposed contexts or prescribed canons of interpretations? What are we to gain from resisting these paradigms or unraveling our relationship to social, cultural, and historical parameters as articulated by dominant epistemologies? And of course, 
such a subject deserves more than a mediation. It cannot be dealt with, with a reclass as reclassified. It is, however, important to readdress the conditions of these constructs, which are little more than cartographical fictions, as I said before, closed in geopolitical entities. It is in this capacity that Forum welcomes every one of you. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for your time. And it is worth it to come back to Somerset House over the course of the next four days, every afternoon from 1 to 5.30 p.m., because I think we'll have some explosive discussions, I hope at least. And now I'll go on to kickstart our keynote. And for that, I'm extremely happy to welcome Jihan Eltari, who will be talking to us about the Great Divide, which is a, a conversation, more of a conversation and a storytelling manner than a real lecture about how these divisions between North and South came about, how we have internalized them ourselves, and how we are continue to perform it and maybe how we can break this performance in order to create a more inclusive understanding of what Africa is. But before that, I want to say that Jihan is an award-winning director, writer, producer, and visual artist. She is an ex of Egyptian and French origin who started her career as a foreign correspondent covering Middle East politics. In 1990, she began directing and producing documentaries for BBC, PBS, Arte, and all of them. Over and since then, and since then she has produced and directed numerous documentaries. Her most recent is Nasser, part of this year's official selection at the Toronto Film Festival. She has also produced and directed the acclaimed documentaries Behind the Rainbow, Cuba, an African Odyssey, as well as the Emmy-nominated House of Saud. Her writings include Les Sept Vies de Yasser Arafat, published by Grasset in Paris, and Israel's and the Arab, The Fifty Years' War by Penguin in London. Jian is also engaged in various associations and institutions working with African cinema. She has served as treasurer of the Guild of African Filmmakers in the Diaspora, regional secretary of the Federation of Pan-African Cinema, and as advisor on Focus Features Africa First program. I'm very, very pleased and honored to have Jihan here. Please welcome Jihan. Now's the moment I shouldn't trip, right? <laughs> okay. Okay, hello everyone, and thank you so much for coming. I first want to thank Koyo, Turia, and of course, Gabriella, uh, to have asked me to come here. Um, I'm very honored, thank you. 
Um, when Koyo first uh, approached me about talking here, we discussed the divisions between North and South. And as we were talking, a specific incident that happened to me personally uh, just immediately came to mind. Uh, in 1995, I was attending the Festaco, the, um, okay. <laughs> I was attending the Festaco, which is the uh, Pan-African Cinema Film Festival, which has existed for at least 40 years. And uh, news came around that they're going to have, they're going to launch for the first time a collective called The Guild to regroup African uh, filmmakers. It was the very first time a collective voice was even being considered. And I went to the meeting, and as the room was filling up, all these glamorous African uh, filmmakers were showing up. And I was really excited that this initiative was taking place. And I sat there um, listening to all these debates between African filmmakers silently, which is not always uh, easy for me. <laughs> but as I sat there, these debates were happening, and I put my hand up and I wanted to talk. The, the chap at the podium looked at me and passed me over first time. Then a second time, I thought he hadn't seen me, so second time, still passed me over. And third time, I insisted to get up and talk. I demanded. And basically, he looked at me, and I said, why are you not calling on me? He said, this is a meeting for black African filmmakers. You're an Arab, and you're an Anglophone, n'est-ce pas? Uh, you can stay if you want to listen, but this, this space is not for you. I mean, I guess I didn't have the sense at that point to fight back. I was devastated, confused, and I really didn't know how to react to this. So I picked up my bag and I left. And that's a mistake I haven't repeated since. But this incident was really a landmark for me. It, it faced me with three very specific questions that I needed to clarify my own identity. Am I really an African? Many of my fellow Egyptians don't see themselves as Africans. And the second question is like, what does African really mean? And thirdly, I was, I'm quite imbibed by the writings and the, the concept of Pan-Africanism and the, the visionary blueprint um, that you know, they saw at the moment of independence, African unity and all what they proposed. So as a true African, my reasoning after this landmark incident was to go and do some research. What is this all about? So of course, my eyes went straight to colonialism. And so I guess what I was left with most was the, um, the concept of divide and rule. It, it, it's a simple but effective pillar that has become a pillar of, of our collective inheritance everywhere on the continent. And the divisions on the continent today are many, but none are as big as that rift between the North and the South. And what does North and South mean? Because, I mean, I come from Egypt. The South of Egypt are Nubians. How did the charcoal-colored Nubians become white? 
in terms of the distinctions of the space. It's really quite baffling. So what are these divisions actually based on? Are they based on skin color? Are they based on language? Are they based on religion? I mean, how do you, how do you go forth and say, okay, that's where, because Sub-Sahara doesn't actually exist. There's no line that says Sub-Sahara. So where do you actually define that line? So this is, if it's the distinction between black and white, it's a bit problematic because each one of the countries of the North actually has its own black population that you can't start saying is a minority. It's not a minority, it's part of the country. So as I was saying, Egyptians have, in Nub the Nubians are Egyptians, they're black. Uh, in Tunisia, the southern parts are black. In Algeria, the whole Hogar region are black. Um, Mauritania, you name it. So, so obviously it's not the color line that we're talking about. Language, what are we talking about? Are we talking about post-colonial languages? or are we talking about local languages? If we're looking, talking about local languages, indigenous languages, what do we do with the Congo that has 400 languages? Which one becomes what? So most of the time we're obviously talking about the colonial languages. So Arabic, English, and French. So in that case, where do we place Chad? Where do we place Tanzania? Chad speak Arabic, but they're sub-Saharan. Tanzania and the whole of East Africa speak Swahili. 40% of the Swahili language is based on Arabic. So is it religion? So why isn't Senegal part of North Africa? Why isn't Mali part of North Africa? And then what do we do about Burkina Faso and Cote d'Ivoire that are 50-50? So basically, I guess my point is that with a little bit of research, you realize that this whole concept of division is you don't even know how to find criteria to justify it. And again, the Sahara, as Koya was saying, the Sahara was never a barrier between the North and South. The tribes of the Sahara were, the Sahara itself was historically a space of, of sanctuary, hospitality, trade, cultural exchange, it was drawing of the borders that made the space, it designated the space as that space of the great divide. And instead of highlighting the diversity, the beauty, the endurance of all these desert tribes that connected the North and the South, the Sahara became stigmatized as a place of arid hostility where there's nothingness, there's things above it and things below it, but there's nothing there. But us as Africans, we know that like the, elect the erected borders during the colonial time, the Great Divide is nothing but a colonial structure. But unfortunately, if we choose to perpetuate these divisions today, we can't blame the colonials. We need to blame ourselves too. The infrastructure of the Great Divide, though, persists, and that is what we're talking about. We've built our nations on top of the infrastructure, the foundation that was left over from the colonial era. And myself, as an artist, I'm constantly confronted with this North-South divide. North-South Arab-African 
the structures of financing, let's take it in the arts, for example, the structures of financing. Every time I want to start a project, the first thing I have to do is to fill in a form. The form's gonna ask me, are you North African, are you South African? It's gonna ask me if I'm Christian or if I'm Muslim. It's gonna ask me if I'm Anglophone. So we're being all the time boxed into spaces where you suddenly have to define and find yourself within a single identity. And to successfully fill that form and get the money which you really need to make your film, um, you sort of do away with the multi-layeredness and the complexity of this Africanness. I'm an Anglophone, a Francophone, and an Arabophone. I'm a Muslim and I'm a secular. I'm an Arab and I'm certainly an African. So who says I have to choose? Like, why do I, why can't I be both at the same time? And being in that space, my country, Egypt, is actually at the heart of this debate on Africanness. Somewhere along the line, Egyptians were brainwashed into believing that they're not Africans. And other Africans were brainwashed into believing that Egyptians are not Africans either. I mean, Africa is a geographic space also. So if Egypt isn't African, I'm not quite sure where it is. <laughs> anyway, I believe that this, it is the centrality of this argument about Egypt is really important. Sheikh Anta Diop. Um, a Senegalese physicist, anthropologist, and historian demonstrated, he was actually the first Nobel Prize winner, African Nobel, in physics. He created uh, the, the, uh, the process of uh, carbon dating. So a very important um, scientist who basically left everything aside and started looking at this idea of the divisions on the continent. He, he uh, in his book, uh, Nation Negre et Culture, he looked at Egyptian civilization and basically he argued that the, the, the excluding Egypt from the legacy of African history was an integral part of the groundwork for the idea, the first idea of colonialism. The argument was civilizing the barbarians. The argument of colonialism was civilizing the barbarians. Well, how are you going to civilize the barbarians if the most ancient civilization actually lies within that space? So it was important from the beginning to exclude Egypt from the concept of Africa, from the heritage of Africa. And that idea continues like my children in France a few years ago I still do, studied Egyptian civilization as part of European history classes. And obviously, I mean, I was furious, and I remember going to the headmistress, and I demanded absolutely that she uh, puts the Egyptian uh, civilization class within the context of African history, and or she should take my children out of that class, but not, yeah. and she looked at me as though, of course, I was insane. And so obviously I, I lost that battle, but maybe also it was the bad timing of the battle. Since that was the year the French National Assembly passed a law not too long ago, in 2005, a law, the law on colonialism, where the con controversial Article 4 uh, asks teachers and textbooks to acknowledge, and I'm quoting, acknowledge and recognize in particular, the positive role of French presence abroad 
especially in North Africa, and to pay tribute to history and to the sacrifices of the French army. So in 2005, my children were being taught the positive role of colonialism. So, I wasn't too happy about it, I still don't know, but anyway. I said, I mean, as I said earlier, but we can't just blame colonialism. The founding fathers of African independence were aware of the ills of colonialism and how that policy, what it did was bestow privilege on some, mainly the North, and make sure that the South remained in, in, in many ways enslaved. And that led to consequences that we all know, including uprisings, they ensured internal division, civil wars, and even genocide. Like the Hutu-Tutsi divide doesn't come from nowhere. This policy was, is applied regionally and it is applied continentally, okay? And the founding fathers of, of independence knew that this division would remain the Achilles heel. So in 1961, Kwame Nkrumah and Gamal Abdel Nasser and Sekoturi met in Cairo and they had a discussion about the framework. I mean, their discussion basically were the seed, was the seeds that later created the, the OAU, the African Union. And there were three points, the support of independence movements and then how African countries can remain non-aligned in this new context of the superpowers during the Cold War, and they devised a, a, a blueprint uh, for true African unity, okay? Pan-Africanism wasn't only an ideological stance. It was conceived on, an on the infrastructure that was necessary for making it economically and politically viable, because this unity is, is it's, a, it's an economic as well as political thing. Let me give you examples. Markets, most multinationals over the past five years, what have they been doing? They've been divesting from Europe because the markets in Africa are the central markets today. So they're moving to Africa. But Africa, maybe we'll start seeing African Union now that the markets and the multinationals need that space. Um, politically, it's the same. There are 54 countries. When you need a vote passed in the United Nations, if you can count on 54 votes, it's done. So basically, these talks in 1961 were about relinking the North and the South and how basically the OAU would be the hub for this, the, this machine that would start relinking them. Okay, so Egypt, which was the first, obviously I'm talking from an Egyptian perspective because I'm Egyptian, but it is also one of the keys. Um, Egypt was the first country to get its independence on the continent. Yes, it's Egypt, 1956, and not Ghana in 1957, I insist. <laughs> and it had the infrastructure to implement the decisions they reached in that meeting in 1961, okay? Um, Gamal Abdel Nasser, what he did, I mean, to the, when I talk about the infrastructure, what Gamal Abdel Nasser did is that he created a, an, uh, an export-import company called the Nasser Company, and uh, it was export and import, and they had this shipping armada 
the shipping armada basically served to run guns to all the nationalist uh, national liberation movements all over the continent. And I remember when I was making a film in the Congo in the late 90s, I was, um, uh, I, I interviewed some of the people who were working with Lumumba at the time of independence. And every time I'd walk into an interview with one of them, the guy would stand up when he knew I was Egyptian. He said, oh, Egypt did this and this and that for us, you know? And then he'd look at me and say, what happened? <laughs> and it would sit down like, <laughs> so it was out of the game. But not all Egyptians started looking away from Africa. I mean, even artists, I think, I think one of the things that happened in the 50s and the 60s, even art, the arts, um, maybe I should start, uh, um, can you give me the first slide? Yeah, a lot of the painters, a lot of the artists started wanting to integrate our blackness as Egyptians as part of it. So you have someone like Mahmoud Said, huh? Um, who's uh, a painter from the 60s, who, who started painting all these very typical Egyptian scenes. Um, so the way she is dressed, the, the hand bangles and the leg bangles and the water, but a typical Egyptian, this is a typical Egyptian woman. The, huh? same, same thing, a typical Egyptian dress. So it was, it was the desire to reclaim Egypt as it, with its own blackness. This is, this is uh, Raghab uh, Ayyad, who, uh, this is a Azar, which is a typical Egyptian ceremony, uh, a bit mystical, um, about, they dance the way that possessed souls, basically. And it's a very traditional Egyptian uh, ceremony. And again, it is painted, and these are the Egyptian felukas by, Halim. So basically, this whole movement of trying to um, reintegrate Egypt into its normal context and its diversity. And same goes for it was in, in, in different art forms too. I mean, Lotus Magazine became, a, which was a quarterly, um, it became a platform where novelists throughout the continent participated. So someone like Yusuf Sibai and Shinwa Achebe were debating and writing things that even letters exchanged. And here comes, and, and within the context of the arts, the PASI, which is the Federation of Pan-African Cinema that um, I sat on the board of, of, uh, for a while. It was created through a dialogue between Tahir Shriya, who's a Tunisian filmmaker, and Osman Samben, a Senegalese filmmaker. And this space exists, Fespako exists until today. Art has always been a language that is capable of connecting ideas and spaces. Art is a space that relinks all of us traumatized nations and allow us to believe in the power of the collective. But there were some amongst our leaders who did not see the value of African unity and underlined the divisions. And Leopold Senghor of Senegal was one of them. The concept of negritude and Pan-Africanism are theoretically 
based one and one on the same, but it depends on where you underline it. And, and, uh, and Leopold Senghor was very clear about wanting negritude, which he was one of the founding fathers of, to completely exclude the North. And so in the Festival d'Art Negre in 1966 in Senegal, there was a massive fight and like at a, boycott, at a boycott and there was a whole issue around do we include the North of Africa or not? They decided not to include the North of Africa and as um, Koyo mentioned, as a response to that, um, uh, Algeria, which had just, you know, newly uh, independent, um, uh, did the Festival Pan-Africain, the first edition of the Festival Pan-Africain. In that Festival Pan-Africain, which took uh, place in um, Algiers, obviously, in 1969, it was the embodiment of the hope. I, there's, I, I wanted to show you a clip of it, but I can't open it, so you're not going to see it. But you can, uh, if you want to see it, it's William Klein, it's called Festival Pan-Africain, and uh, in of 1969, there's a whole like 10 minute opening of the dance troops of every country on the continent going through each one with its music. And at some point they start just dancing together. And you then realize that the beat is the same, the harmony is the same, and they want to be together. Yeah? And of course, after the Festival Pan-Africain, things went downhill from there. I'm not going to get into a century of what happened then. I just want you to reflect on one thing. When Gamal Abdel Nasser died in 1970, Egypt steered itself away from colonial policy. It had turned, it looked at itself that Africa, the South, was its natural death, uh, depth. When he died aged 51, Cairo Radio had 18 different radio stations broadcasting daily and the whole day in Bantu languages. Five years from there, five years later, in 1975, not a single one of these radios existed. So there had been a will and there had been a way, but things changed with the coming of a new leader who no longer saw Africa as his natural depth. He saw America as his natural depth, okay? Today we live in the age of internet. So that was then. Today we live in the age of the internet. What is stopping us? Why can we not reach out to each other? I mean, I want to take the example of South African musicians. Huh? Um, in the virtual space, music is happening across continents. Like there's, there's, there's a musician from South Africa called Lesejo who has done an entire album with a German musician called Ralph Gum, and it's a top seller. They were living in two different countries and have two different worlds musically, but the possibility of collaborating was there. Another uh, example, again from South Africa, is Ta Ice, a young, poor chap who lived in the townships of Pretoria and made a track from the garage of his, you know, his grandmother's garage in the township and sent it off to an American uh, DJ who remixed it. 
It was the hit of absolutely every club two years ago. So these collaborations today are possible. It's not just depending on the political will of, of people. So there have been, obviously, initiatives. Africa Remix that was uh, curated by Simon Njabi, uh, Njami, <laughs> was, uh, was, was, was a real initiative to get the North and the South to even get to know each other. But the truth is that we know little about each other. Who are we gonna blame? I'm trying to find someone to blame. <laughs> I actually spent the morning saying like, okay, now that I'm saying all this, <laughs> who am I gonna blame? What are we gonna do about it, okay? Um, I think we should all blame ourselves, really. Let's start each one individually. I'm gonna take an example of the FEPASI, the Federation of Pan-African Cinema. In 2006, the, the African Union, which is quite a heavy machine that doesn't do much, um, finally decided to create an African film fund, okay? And every single Ministry of Culture earmarked uh, a, a section of its uh, budget for this film. That was in 2006. Until today, this fund is not happening. Why is it not happening? It's happening because obviously it takes time to create a coherent policy and all of this. But the truth is the criteria of who is an African, which one of the films can be labeled African so we can fund it, all sorts of criteria, all these boxes that were imposed on us by the Western funds are now being trickled down to the same, even to the African funds. Um, what I guess one of the things that I want to draw your attention to in terms of collaboration, the funds and all the film festivals and all this division between North and South is getting worse rather than getting better. But there is a dangerous evolution in terms of who is collaborating. Who is exploiting the vacuum that our politicians are digging deeper and we ourselves are digging deeper? Think of it for a second. Which groups on the continent today are actually collaborating? Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, ISIS, Islamic Jihad. These groups are not talking about borders, we are because they see the interest and the importance of collaboration to make you stronger. Why, why do the rest of us not see that? So, I'm certainly not saying anything specific about any group or the rest of it, but I'm saying that Africa is a space that is a space that was designed and thought, but since ancient times where there have been collabor collaborations. When the ancient Egyptians, you see monuments in Zimbabwe that have absolute traces that the Egyptians and, and the Zimbabweans in, um, I can't remember the name of the place. Um, huh? Okay. 
Mapungupwe is what I was thinking of. Mapungupwe, the, these collaborations do have traces. Hmm? I'm saying to all of us Africans, telling ourselves that let's not fall into the trap of what Edward Said warned us about, the trap of Orientalism. Let's stop seeing ourselves through the prism of the outsider. Let's think of ourselves and see how we can go forward. This, there are many spaces that have more than enough space and will be much bigger and better with collaboration. I, I had some pictures. I sort of went off track a bit, but never mind. Um, <laughs> I have some pictures of uh, um, the, in 1961, when they met to divide and talk about the African Union. That's Nasser and Sikuture. Nasser and Nkrumah. This is, this is the meeting, these are pictures from the meeting where the, the uh, uh, the actual setting up of 1963 of the African Union. And that's Modibo Kaita and uh, Nyerere. Voilà. Uh, Algeria, Mauritania, Zanzibar, and Tanzania. This, these are the princes of Kano from Nigeria. Senghor. <laughs> and discussing a policy together at the United Nations. And this is the meeting before going to the, uh, in 1955, the um, non-aligned summit. So, voila. I just thought they were great pictures. So, <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, so I, I want to end actually on, uh, Basically, pan as far as I'm concerned, Pan-Africanism didn't work out, but it's not obsolete. The idea is there, and we can use it. It doesn't have to be within the confines of what was thought then. We can also look at it. It is a state of mind rather than a set of rules. And I want to end on a paragraph by Tabo Mbeki in his magnificent speech, I am an African that he delivered as an introduction to his African Renaissance policy. He says, I quote, whatever the setbacks of the moment, nothing can stop us now. Whatever the difficulties, Africa shall be at peace. However improbable it may sound to the skeptics, Africa will prosper. Whoever we may be and whatever our immediate interests, however much we carry baggage from our past, However much we have been caught by the fashion of cynicism and loss of faith in the capacity of people, let us err today and say nothing can stop us now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can you hear me?
Thank you so much, Diane. Thank you. And uh, to really kickstart these four days that will really unfold along these uh, uh, thinking and uh, questions. And uh, to, uh, I, there are a few things that, uh, I mean, the, the poignant uh, reaccount that you made of this event that you had in 1995 uh, at the FEPASI uh, conference or meeting. Um, I really, when, since I've started doing these conversations, um, I really, each year, spend a lot of time thinking about what is it that makes our, the framework of artistic production and uh, the, the framework of translation of that production into everyday life and also into, into politics. What are the questions that are burning? And you mentioned something quite radical here, and we discussed it very briefly when we were talking. Today, those who are not seeing or applying the divide are actually those also who are working towards constraining us, which are all the, uh, um, I mean, very terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, and so on. They don't make a distinction between North or South. Uh, they have a, a very different purpose. So um, what I want to ask you is uh, this infrastructure of divide that exists and that we are perpetuating ourselves, that we are ent internalizing, is how do you think we can, we can overcome that? <laughs> Big question. Uh, let me just go get my uh, crystal ball, <laughs> and I'll be right here. You had some ideas. No, but that's... Uh, I just want we you actually to... Do, no, no, I actually do need a crystal ball many, in, in many ways, and it's not at all... Um, looking into the future is a very important thing, and that's why when I was talking... Uh, at the beginning of the being visionary, our forefathers were looking into crystal balls in a way. Um, um, let me just go back to how you started the question. I think one of the things, the incident that, that, that I uh, mentioned in Fespaco, I thought of it for years and years. Ironically, the person who actually told me that is now a friend, and of course I never let him go 10 minutes without reminding him that he's the one who said that. But anyway, um, uh, I think where it comes from is, is very simple. There's not enough money to go around. We have been, we have grown thinking that the pie is not big enough for all of us, rather than looking at the pie as um, if we are all there around it, more will come. 
And I think that being able to shift that perspective, I mean, I'm sure you, all of us have been in a situation where instead of somebody working with you as a brother to support you, it's the opposite. Because his idea is that, well, if you take that fun, how am I gonna make my film? And, and, and so there is a kind of uh, the logic of the poor to it. And that's why in a bit of uh, what I was saying, I actually don't know if I said it or not, I skipped a couple of pages. <laughs> um, it's what is more dangerous is the auto-censorship. And, and what is more dangerous is us seeing ourselves in a way that is imposed on us. And the auto-censorship means that we get into these spaces that we think that that's the only available thing. And there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, I mean, it speaks very much to me what you just said, because uh, there is this idea of uh, contemporary African art or the space of contemporary African art booming. And uh, in interviews or in conversation, I'm always addressed, I mean, I'm always questioned to address that. And I always say there is, I mean, and there, there is this assumption that this sort of increased uh, visibility is due to the Western uh, increased interest. And I always say this is so not true. It's not about that. It's about having more professionals on the ground. But at the same time, in that pool of professionals and artists and institutions, not just more professional, but also more institutions, because one of the things that we always forget is that we, we work a lot on personal, a kind of independent basis, and we forget to build institutions. And that institution building is really at the core of, uh, of uh, any infrastructure that we are working to, to, uh, to establish. So, uh, and also within that space, there is, you know, this cons uh, idea that uh, certainly not collaborate enough, but or, and certainly or, divide, and we have internalized all of yeah. this. It's not just be between North Africa and Southern Africa, but also between within the, the discipline. Yeah. I mean, and I think, I mean, we here at 154 work very strongly against that, and, uh, and especially at Raw Material Company we do, because uh, we strongly believe <coughs> that it is in the togetherness and it is in the collaboration that we can grow, and especially not in I, the I think I think in many ways we as individuals have become the mirror image of our countries, okay? So the, the internal alliances between groups very much conforms to what is happening in the political arena of each and every country. The, internally, you're demanded to do the either or the whole time. And I remember as we were talking, I was talking to you about, again, the music scene, um, in, in, especially in South Africa, because I know that, that best. There are stables. So you can work with these five artists because they're from this stable. And if a promoter, somebody, uh, for some reason decides to, to, to work with a musician from outside that stable, 
all five who are very well known of that particular stable won't go to that country again. So, so there is the politics of designing who becomes the, um, uh, the face of a certain thing. And there's something in that that I think is really important. Um, somehow, and I don't know how that became a reality, but it is, in, in the world, let me take cinema for example, um, we're only allowed one well-known figure. There's one name, there's one brand. And every single event that happens that needs to include cinema needs to have that one face. <laughs> You're not gonna take me there. <laughs> Uh, actually, no, why shouldn't I? Let me go. Um, yes, well, <laughs> uh, like for example, he's a very good friend of mine, and I'll say that if, if he's here. Someone like Abdurrahman Siseko, who is the face of African cinema today. Um, it is impossible to have a big event if he doesn't attend. And I remember a specific uh, incident, um, the very first um, uh, documentary film festival in Mozambique. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the director of the festival calls me in absolute panic like three days before the festival. He says, I think we're gonna have to cancel. And he says, why? And I say, why? He says, all the sponsors want me to guarantee that Abdurrahman's film is gonna be the opening film. And I, said, what? Like, what do you mean? It's not a documentary. He says, yeah, but tell that to the sponsors. So even the sponsors don't want to have anything to do except with that one well-known face. Is it because the Western space, the, the, the uh, mental space for difficult names is, is limited? <laughs> It must be. I mean, like, why can't you have three African filmmakers? Why does it have to be one? And, and, and so, I mean, and this happens in every one of the arts. There's the flavor of the month. I mean, it's last several years, but <laughs> the flavor of the month. And it's impossible to do anything without that face. At this point, I really, I think that there may be comments uh, in the questions and uh, in the in the audience and even oppositions, we welcome that critiques. So please, uh, instead of Jihan and I, we can go on like that the whole afternoon. <laughs> and uh, you are not here just only to listen to us uh, uh, conversing. So really, I I want to open the floor. To, to you if you have any, anything to add to, to this, this conversation. Hi, I, I have several questions, but I'll start with just one simple. Just say your name quickly. I, I'm uh, Omar Barada, and uh, I just wanted to know more about the 18 radio stations. Yeah. Um, uh, basically, in 1955, Cairo Radio 
set up Suta Kahira set up different um, uh, it was in the same building and they had sections in Bantu languages so Africans from different countries would uh, come and work in the radio but at the the, um, the university I don't know what it's called Kulayt uh, al-Adab somebody help uh, the you know, the uh, faculty of humanities um, uh, had uh, a department for every one of these languages so at the same it became training ground to learn these Bantu languages and uh, it was the time when the transistor had just come out and it wasn't just about radio it wasn't just about the arts the radio was an amazing tool for the ideologies of the time, for independence, for... Uh, um, you still find some reels. If you're interested in that, I can take you down that road. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Ayana Jackson. Thank you so much. Actually, I could listen to this conversation all afternoon, so <laughs> I'm sure there are many with me. I'm just curious, um, you mentioned the internet earlier um, and the potential of the internet. So it made me curious to know, as we think about the, you know, the, this, this uh, generational shift, political shifts, where, where, if you know, if you could say, where are the youth in this moment in terms of this conversation um, about um, yeah, acknowledging the depth being within Africa as opposed to other places? Is there any kind of movement in this moment that is kind of yeah. doing that? Uh, th there are quite a few. I mean, um, but th there are a number that are just budding. I think, uh, I think there's even uh, one of the internet sites. Uh, I met them down here yesterday. Um, it's called True Africa. Um, so, like, this is an example. I didn't know about them. But, um, uh, uh, for example, uh, you have a whole group uh, of, of people rallying around a new website called Africa as a Country, but that is uh, <laughs> Sean Jacobs who started it. And so th there are starting to be these little pockets. But for example, you have quite a few web festivals for films. Um, they too uh, select per sub-Saharan or not sub-Saharan. So that integration or that opening the door to just, if you're African, come, uh, is still not quite there in terms of even the web. Um, I do have some specific websites, but I don't, uh, that I'll give you later. Mike, just say your name. Hello. We can do live stream, but we record the, the conversation. Just so I'm Lisa van der Waal. Um, I just actually want to add, if you're interested in that, at the moment there's a show by, well, sort of a platform by Chimorenga at the showroom in Wesleyan Grove, and that's, you know, about what um, Jaron was talking about about this pan-African outreach. Yeah, I, I mean. Which you Let me add on to this, actually. Someone like Mtoni, uh, who, who uh, came up with uh, Chimarenga, it, it's actually one of the first um, urban artistic 
magazine on, uh, that came out in South Africa. Uh, it started in South Africa, but then became completely Pan-African. Um, the whole discourse of what is Pan-Africanism and keeping that, the, the debate, the discussion, even just the discussion alive. Um, uh, he even has an, a Pan-African um, uh, arts and uh, um, arts and craft market in, in, in Cape Town. So there are pockets like that of, of things. That, but I think what the main thing of this, when I say Pan-African, it's not just about being African. It's about accepting the diversity of being African. And I think that that's the key thing. Because, um, I mean, let me get into polemics immediately. Um, how do we, what do we do about white South Africans? What, like, they're white South Africans. They are African. So, I mean, the, 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 the amount of diversity, I remember, okay, let me say another story. <laughs> um, I, I, I did a film in Zambia many years ago, and it was about the uh, food aid policy. And I went to interview the Minister of Agriculture of Zambia. And I arrived at the office and there was this guy, you know, pushing cables around, a white guy with shorts, you know. So I sat and I kept waiting for the minister, waiting for the minister. And eventually I tell the white guy who was uh, playing with the cables, when's the minister coming? He looked at me, he says, I'm the minister. <laughs> and I looked and said, what do you mean you're the minister? You're white. It's exactly what I told him. He's like, this is Zambia. Like, it's not Zimbabwe. It's like, and he says, yeah, but I'm Zambian and only Zambian. I'm not English and I'm not anything else. I'm just Zambian. And he's called Guy Scott and he's really funny. And I actually sort of forget the interview. Tell me more. And we sat there for hours and he explained to me the whole dynamic. And like, I didn't know there were Zambians that were white, white, white. I mean, like it's not, they're Zambian. He's fourth generation Zambian and nothing else. So that diversity is something we need to constantly be aware of. Yeah, that the idea of Africa is not just blackness, and that blackness is much wider than just Africa. Or Chinese the and, and Indians and the, and the are part of Africa. And I think this is really, for me personally, the, the, the sort of uh, cultural challenge that we have to face in the next uh, coming generations. Hi, um, my name is Yasmin Vampi. Um, thank you so much for your talk, it was wonderful. Um, you kind of hinted at it already when you said that after Nasser's death, the gaze of Egyptian politics went towards America and no longer towards Africa. So I was wondering if you could speak a little more to how Cold War politics play into these Af inter-African divides because it doesn't quite map onto the north-south division. Yeah. Okay. The, the, okay. At the north-south, uh, uh, so, sorry, the Cold War, how the Cold War played in. Um, <clears throat> um, I'm gonna start by when I started the research for my film called Cuba's African Odyssey, um, everything I read and everything I knew was based on one and one only concept that Africa was a space that was used by the Cold War 
for proxy wars. That was it, only, okay? And I think I did research for about a year and nothing ever contradicted that until I had asked to declassify some documents from the, um, the Freedom of, uh, as part of the Freedom of Information Act and I found a telegram, a five line telegram that was the, um, the wiretap of a conversation between Castro and Khrushchev. Huh? And it was really weird because they were fighting and they really did not like each other. And that's in 1964. Fine, like because as a result of the Cuban Missile Crisis and all of that, but anyway, in 1964 they were still literally insulting each other in the telegram. Okay, but it sort of posed a problem for me because if Che went to the Congo in 1964 as part of this Cold War thing, the Soviets had just pulled the Cuban missiles out and they were obviously not talking to each other. So on whose behalf was the Che going? I mean, it's a stupid question. Who sent you? <laughs> you know? And I kept, I went to, 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 to Moscow, I tried to find, and everyone would say, actually, that's interesting, it's true, we weren't talking. It's like, and the answer, nobody had the answer. Eventually, I went to Cuba, all I knew was that the Che went with 123 soldiers, all of them black. And we didn't have names because they all had code names uh, being the Swahili numbers, one, two, three, four, five. So, you know, it was a bit difficult. So I went knocking on doors, you know, in a, in a black area. And finally, I found one of the soldiers who then linked us up to it. And I'd ask him the same question. And he'd look at me like really not understanding what I'm talking about. And eventually he says, what do you want to know? I said like, why did you do this? And with this, why did the Soviets finance you to do this? And he looked at me and he said, the Soviets? We went to the Congo in disguise so the Soviets don't find out. And it was this little bit of information that suddenly changes the entire narrative of history. And that narrative is not a Cold War narrative. And suddenly that's where, of course, I had to throw out one year of uh, research and start the whole thing. It was a different narrative. And I think what is really important here is that we haven't, as Africans, we have not written down our narrative. Everything that's written is coming from an Orientalist perspective. <laughs> and we haven't written our narratives. And so I had all these, suddenly he connected me with all these people, and then I went to meet the Congolese, and then I went to Guinea-Bissau, and, and everyone was telling me a story that I'd never heard before. And there was this concept called internationalism that was the basis and the foundation that what all of them wanted to do in the 60s, and it was the idea of the solidarity of the weak. And the solidarity of the weak was create multiple Vietnams so both superpowers will look away from you, leave us alone to start our own independence. And Nasser, so it's a very long way around to answer your question, but Nasser was an integral part of this. I, I don't have the picture here, but I have a picture of a meeting of Che with uh, Benbella, with uh, 
all of them getting together. It's the Algerians who sent the Che to the Congo the first time. So all this is interconnected. And I think, uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of archive, because when you look at archive, you say, how are these two people sitting in the same room? And until you do some research and find out why they were sitting in the same room, we'll never know the narrative, our own personal narrative. I mean, I just, yeah, I I'll give you the word in a minute, just to continue on this idea of the Cold War, how did it play out uh, in Africa? Uh, I'm doing a fascinating project currently with my dear friend Rasha Salti, and uh, we are looking at, from a very simple prism of uh, contemporary art and film curators, we are, we are trying to look at the influence of Russian cinema into African and Arab cinema of a period covering three generations of professionals from the 1960s to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And through that work, we are getting to see and to understand the counter-narrative exactly of this idea of the non-imperialistic idea of Russia, which is totally not true because Russia had a very strong imperialistic program and the colonialist program, which was played out also in Africa through a lot of uh, scholarships, for instance. I mean... Um, Abderrahman. Yeah, Abderrahman <laughs> Sisako is a Studied Russian in, uh, product, if you want. So... Um, what I want to, to respond to you and how did that play out between North and South? And I think that maybe in the, in the 60s and very strongly in the 70s, there were a sort of disillusion of the socialist idea has started to sort of uh, uh, trickle down. But there was a strong um, uh, <coughs> propaganda machine uh, as the Western colonialists were sort of leaving, without really leaving, we know, um, when, as the Russian propaganda set the scene through the idea of socialist friendship. And the many newly independent African countries, of course, bought into, into, that, uh, uh, into that story or into those stories. So... And uh, it's interesting if we if we really stay in the in the realm of films, there is always in Fespaco or in uh, other gatherings of African cinema, there is this idea of the Russians. There are all these African and Arab filmmakers that studied in Russia, and that are called the Russians. But nobody ever really studied or unearthed what is Russian about them. And this is what we are trying to do with, uh, uh, with this project because um, I think that uh, in terms of, uh, of film, we all know the Paris School, the Hollywood School, of course, and, uh, uh, and Nollywood and Bollywood. <laughs> But the Moscow school and how much it has influenced imagery, I mean, how do you say it? Im imaginaire, uh, the imagination and also the, the making of, uh, of African and Arab cinema is, uh, is not done. So in that, uh, but really this was also part of a cause, kind of Cold War policy because what Jihan calls proxy wars 
culture was also a ground of, of running proxy wars through scholarships. I mean, uh, the idea of giving scholarship is, of course, uh, to create uh, allegiance to education, to affiliation, to, to a certain cultural realm. And, uh, and Russians did that very, very strongly in Africa. Well, I hope that this follows up nicely on, on what you said, Koyo, but I want to go to uh, a quote which might be more of a paraphrase if I wasn't writing fast enough that was said earlier, where art links us traumatized nations to become part of a collective. So my question is in reference to um, either of your practices or both of them um, and bridging this great divide. Um, do you subscribe to the educational or egalitarian ideas of artistic engagement because they seem to be dominating <coughs> some interventions? Um, and I sort of worry that if we do subscribe to that consistently, that we might insist on um, funders who need to build capacity in ways that might disrupt that collective. Did you understand that? I didn't. <laughs> I did not. Can, can you just put it simply, please? <laughs> yeah, I'm just interested in, in your particular practice and the need for educational or um, egalitarian ideas within the art spaces. Um, and are they necessary for bridging this gap for the, um, the divide? Okay. I, I, think, I think that it doesn't have to be an either or, like everything else. I'm, I'm really anti either or, like put them all together and sift them later. Um, uh, having a, a training or a, a, an educational side, I think is really important because these spaces have not existed and um, let me give you an example. Um, I, I was working on the focus feature um, advisory board. We wanted anyone from a specific country to come, but there were none. None. There was nobody in that country that was doing short films. Uh, <coughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> I, for example, I started working with the sorry, um, <laughs> with, with the Sudan uh, film factory. At the time we started, there wasn't, there was nothing. There isn't a cinema, there's, there's, there's nothing. So the, the infrastructure of being able to tell your story does need a learning curve. So does every single film, does every single project need that? No, but the availability of such projects, yes. Now. The financing of that, I guess part of what I was trying to say that might have not come through that clearly is that Western funds are the only funds available. That is the reality. Am I going to stop using them? Of course not. But is there, do, they, what, do they actually ask me to say anything? No, they don't. It's up to me to push the parameters of what I want to do and can do. 
and there's, auto, and there's a lot of auto-censorship. A lot of people are worried, but if I then criticize the people who are giving me the money, then they'll never give me money again. Well, have you tried? No, you're, most of the people don't try. I'm saying, well, give it a try, and if they don't give you money, tough. I think, I think, <laughs> I think, I think, I think you should try, and sometimes it even earns you more respect. I did try many times to turn, I mean, not I tried, I did turn down certain funding. Yeah. And I think that uh, uh, if you are not, you don't agree with certain kind of ideologies embedded in the, in the funding system, you should, you should oppose it. And it's, it's worth it and, and actually, I must say, I, uh, I have never, ever even submitted a project to any one of the French institutional funds, not one of them. Never the Francophonie, never Cooperation, not because I don't want the money, but there is an alternative route that I can use that is less dependent, and that is the route of mainstream television. Competition is much higher, but then I have to get my act together. But that route of French uh, cultural funding, maybe I will go to it one day. But if I can, if an alternative does exist, I will use it. And that's why I'm, I'm demanding so much that why don't we create an African fund? There are some coming up soon, but they're still coming up. Thank you. There are two more people, or even three more people, and I want to give everyone the possibility to speak. Yes, madam. Hello, Shinigun. I've been working in East Africa, and I'm curious, this prism of Orientalism, I mean, there is an element of having one's cake and wanting to cut it. We should be having these conversations in Africa as well. Why are they just happening here in Europe? Why For, not? Well, at this stage, we've, I mean, there's been Basel. I think it's Basel. not necessary here to discuss this. Also, but when is it going to happen on the African continent? Does it and make here? it more valuable when it happens in Africa? I think it's very important. Excuse me? I think it is very, very important. Okay. I don't know. I think I... I totally understand what your, tr what your concern is, but uh, I really think that we have to go beyond essentialism and localizations. Thought is a premier, per I mean, has it's, it's, it's a flowing uh, uh, material. And uh, the fact that, and I don't necessarily think, and this is what your, I mean, your question has a, an essentialist part to it, and this is what I was reacting uh, in, a, in a, maybe in a strong way, because I, I think that uh, we don't, we were talking exactly against this territorialization, categorization, divide, and so on. And if you translate the whole discussion that we are, what that we are having here, it's against exactly this idea of uh, 
you know, localizing it. I don't necessarily think that the discussion, because it's taking place in London, it does not apply to Africa. And I don't think that the discussion will have more or less value because it's taking place in Africa. We have to get away from this idea of territorializing Africa. Africa is everywhere where I am, for instance, yes. for my understanding. Can I just you know. And, uh, and, and, yeah, and, uh, and, uh, and I really think that, and especially in the, in the time that we live today of internet and access and everything, we are just a very poor organization. We cannot provide live streams, but all this will be tomorrow uploaded on YouTube and anybody anywhere, including in Africa, can have access to it. So I'm trying to understand what is your point for making it for, happening for in example, Africa. For example, I work with visual artists and for them to be able to see international exhibitions. Speak a Like this. For local artists in Africa to have exposure to exhibitions, to be able to see what's happening in all of Africa is very, very important as well. Of course. Um, so of from course. The I, I just want to push her point a bit further, actually. Um, a lot of the artists of all kinds of uh, various art forms um, do live in Europe. The, 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 the African diaspora is huge. That's other than the fact, of course, that uh, uh, a lot of the Africans are going to come through with the new laws. So the African space is going to be much bigger. Um, but it's, there's, there's a lot of the, even during independence, most of the independence conversations started right in Europe, like in Portugal, the Maison de, de l'Afrique in, in Portugal was where uh, Amilcar Cabral, uh, Augustino Neto, and all these people sat and devised how to start their policy. So where a conversation starts and about what? is not about the space, it's about, it, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the state of mind you're in within that space and then you make it accessible. And, it, and reacting to your, to your question, even less so in the day of the internet. Kids in, 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 uh, in, uh, on the continent know more about America than they know about their own culture. So, so why can't they, if they choose not to click on looking at what is African and decide to click what's, uh, what's happening in America, it's because the, the yes, this, this, uh, this disconnect exists on the outside of the internet. And that's what we're talking about, that this disconnect is what we need to be working with. Did we answer your question? Yeah. I yeah. think so too. I really, I think, <laughs> I really think that one of the uh, one of the many kind of pitfalls that we have in the whole discourse about Africa, it's about positions like that. About why is it happening in London and not in I don't know in Dumbelan. Why is it, you know, I think the, the, the localization of, uh, of thought, uh, of course, has an influence on kind of its, uh, its um, 
uh, commodity it's playing out but i don't i and i really i don't really think that we have to essentialize localization because it is it is about uh, a matter that is fluid and that fluidity we have to keep it as flowing as possible i don't necessarily think that uh these debates of forum happening in London and the fair happening in London has a real uh, has a has a real uh, reason. I mean, there are very few places for whatever uh, engagement that we can have that can host an art African art fair in Africa today, except for South Africa. I mean, we all blame it. Nigeria maybe, but they are not getting their act together to make it happen. Angola is coming up, you know. Egypt is still recovering from, from the aftermaths of the, of the re-re-re-revolution. And uh, I mean, I think also that we should not forget uh, uh, the, the aims of certain, uh, of certain initiatives and, 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 uh, and be totally blinded by this kind of uh, continentalist nationalisms, which are really uh, not productive, I think. I, I just, can I just say something about the boxes I was talking about earlier, when, so when I have to define whether I'm an Arab, one of the main criteria of all the funds and of all the film festivals is that you have to be an African living in Africa. And that is one of the, and given that many of our countries, you can't actually say what you want to say when you're living there, it disqualifies 90% of the people who want to say anything. So this whole concept of localization is just to add to what she was saying. So living in like, do, do I stop being an African because I'm suddenly living in Sweden? I'm, no. So, so it's, voila. Should we move on to the next yes. question? There are two more people. Omar wanted to react, but there was someone here. I saw the lady. Please. Just say your name quickly. Gitanjali Dang. I'm a curator. Uh, it was just off the back of what you guys were speaking about in terms of uh, Cold War and the, uh, and the African continent. And uh, I watched a film, a documentary about Amy Cesar recently. And um, it was a, it's a funny, uh, he says, um, we went to, uh, to, the, to USSR as Catholics and we returned as Lutherans. So it was just like this funny way of saying uh, what was happening, uh, speaking of the kind of propaganda, etc. So he was kind of responding to that and I just wanted to share the anecdote. Hello again, Omar Barada. This, this might be a big question, I don't know, but I was just thinking of the question of the disconnect and what you were saying about the fact that we as Africans have tended to internalize the divisions that were imposed by colonialism. And I was thinking about your crystal ball <laughs> and the future and thinking that perhaps some of the answer is also in, in the past, looking through the crystal ball for the past because Thinking about my growing up in Morocco and about what I was taught about in history class or in geography class, 
I don't remember being ever taught anything about Africa as a continent and about anything happening on the other side of the Sahara or anything about the Sahara itself, because in Morocco, it's a very complicated question. Yes. <laughs> um, um, but I was, I was wondering about something because it's something I've been researching recently, the fact that in a place like Morocco or in several North African countries, we don't learn much, well, about the history of Africa, but also about certain traumatic parts of the trans-Saharan relationship, but slavery being one of them, for instance. I know that when some European scholars have worked on this issue, they've been accused of trying to divert attention from transatlantic slavery into sort of internal African slavery. But at the same time, I one think... One of the pages I skipped. Which, which is, you know, possibly very true, but I, I'm thinking that we as African need to own that history, and that's part of moving forward and of um, going beyond the divide is is looking not only at what colonialism has imposed, but also the traumatic parts of our own history yeah. among ourselves. I mean, I think on the continent, uh, uh, us in the north do look down on the south quite severely. We do look down on our own black populations. And the, the south looks up to the, to the north in total disdain, thinking that we're the, 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 the collaborators of the foreign invaders, and that's why we changed the color of our skin, and that we were the slave traders, made money out of slave trade. And, and this reality, which is the truth of how we are today, is again part of this internalization. So I agree with you entirely that this exists but this should not exist. Huh? And it's how do you go around um, learning about our own history? Like when you say that, uh, that there's, um, uh, we, you haven't learned anything about, of course you hardly learn anything about what's hap really happening in your own country. Why do you want to go further down? It's like, I mean, I just finished a film, uh, the film she mentioned. I mean, I didn't know we had a, a president before Gamal Abdel Nasser. I thought Gamal Abdel Nasser was the first president. Like, I'm pretty sure most of you think that Gamal Abdel Nasser was Egypt's first president. No, there was another president for three years before that. Where did he go? Why is he not in any book? Hmm? So all these problematics exist, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't live with it. We live with it, but we should, as artists especially, we should be out there breaking these misconceptions, not working into them. That's, I guess that's all I was really trying to say. We always look north, but even the north looks north. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jihan. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, Rocher Carré yeah, from Cadere comes to my mind. It's also looking north. Absolutely north. <laughs> yes. um, uh, we'll have a 10 minutes break and then we'll continue the rounds of this conversation with an artist talk with uh, Katia Kameli at, uh, at 3. So please 
stretch your legs, get a coffee, come back, coffee. and uh, we'll continue. <laughs>